While Pastor Britt is in Oahu with the surf of Waimea and Pipeline, he needed somebody to fill in. So he scraped the bottom of the barrel and he came up with me. <laughs> Despite my New York accent, I live in England and we don't have football. In England, I call football gridiron. English football is soccer. But we have a game that American football came from called rugby. And I like rugby a lot. And the rugby Super Bowl is called the World Cup, and it's only four years. You have to wait four years for the next Super Bowl in England. And one time I was speaking at a church in Scotland. And uh, it was on the day of the game. So I had my friend put a video in to the VCR and record the game. And that works very well. It really does. You can be just as emotionally involved in the game without being there as long as nobody tells you to score. <laughs> but there was a dear Scottish gentleman, and if I wasn't a Christian, I would have strangled him with his kilt. <laughs> he told me to score. Anyway, all three messages today will be from the book of Numbers, not the same message, at Pastor Britt's request. But if you want to come tonight, I assure you, VCR, if you videotape a game, you won't miss anything as long as nobody tells you the score. I've actually tried it. It does work. And you can be just as emotionally involved and engaged with the game watching it pre-recorded. It's sort of like eternity. God already knows who's going to be saved and who isn't, but relative to us, it's a variable. <laughs> Turn with me, please, to the book of Numbers, chapter 5. Heavenly Father, we come before you with thankful, prayerful hearts as always, looking to you, Lord God, the author and finisher of our faith in your Son, Jesus. Speak to us now, Lord, through your word, by your Spirit, using these things not to increase our knowledge, but to increase our knowledge with the more important aim of making us conform to the image and likeness of your Son, to glorifying you and to helping others in his name, the name in which we pray, Jesus. Amen. Numbers chapter 5. In Hebrew, we call numbers Be'midbar, Be'midbar, literally, in the wilderness, in the wilderness. The five books of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, in the original Hebrew, are called by the first words of the first chapter. Okay, the first words of the first chapter. This is Be'midbar, in the wilderness. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in verse 11 of Numbers 5, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has had intercourse with her, and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she's undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there's no witness against her, and she's not been caught in the act, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he's jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he's jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest, and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose, 
and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. And the priest shall have her take an oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to the water of bitterness that brings this curse. And Hebrew literally free from. Verse 20, If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and have defiled yourself, and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse. And the priest shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, by the Lord making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. Now the Hebrew term for this is hapalot, hapalot. It literally means to to abort or to miscarry, to auto-abort or to miscarry. And this water shall bring a curse that shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell, your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. The priest shall then write these curses on a scroll and shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. Then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offerings as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar and afterwards he shall make the woman drink the water. When he's made her drink the water, it shall come about if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband that the water which brings a curse shall go into her and cause bitterness. Her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away, in other words, she'll miscarry, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she will be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, being under the authority of her husband, goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he's jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord, and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man shall be free from guilt, but that woman shall bear her guilt. This is an ancient Near Eastern fertility rite, a fertility ritual. It's called the rite of ordeal, the law of jealousy. The rite of ordeal and the law of jealousy. In ancient Judaism, there were certain kinds of maladies, illnesses, that would have been seen as judgments from God. For instance, in the ancient world, every society that had an alphabet was largely illiterate, except for the aristocracy, the nobility, the commanders of the army, and the pagan priesthoods. But not with the Jews. The Levites had to make make sure that every Jew could read the Torah. In order to worship, a Jew had to be literate and numerate. They were a fully literate society. In Phoenicia, only some people could read cuneiform. In Egyptian, only some people. In Egypt, only some people could read the hieroglyphics. The Jews, everybody had to read the Word of God. If you couldn't read the Word of God, it would have been seen as a curse because you were excluded from the community of worship. This is the background, for instance, of John 9. When a young man was born blind and they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? He couldn't worship. He couldn't participate in the temple rituals because he couldn't read the Torah. Blindness would have been seen as a curse. Now, Jesus said, of course, neither this man sinned nor his parents. Not all illness is a direct result of a specific sin. Illness broadly came into the world because of the fall of man, because of sin, what theologians call the homotosphere, but not every sin is the result, uh, not every illness is the result of a direct sin. It may be or may not be, but that's another issue. 
Blindness would have been one. Another would have been infertility. Infertility for several reasons. In the book of Joshua, the apportionment of the land to families and tribes had to stay intact. Do not move the ancient landmarks set by your fathers. This was called Yerusha, the inheritance of the land, also keeping the tribal identity, particularly for the tribes of Levi and Judah, because the kings had to be, would have to be a descendant of David, and that would determine who the Messiah would be. The Messiah had to be a descendant of David, but also in the tribe of Levi, who the high priest would be, a direct descendant of Aaron, and then later through the line of Zadok, the Zadokites. So your function in the society was determined by having children. But not least of all was your pension, your social security. Honor thy father and mother. The word in Hebrew and Greek, in Greek in the New Testament, would be honorarium. We get the word money. In Hebrew, the word is kavod. It comes from the word kaved, to be heavy. In other words, the same as your parents were financially responsible for you in your pediatric years, should the need emerge, you are responsible for them in their geriatric years. And if you're not, even the New Testament says, don't expect much longevity yourself. <laughs> it's a commandment with a promise. Now, if you didn't have any kids, you had a problem. You had no pension. It's still, our, our ministry, we went off to just for AIDS babies in Africa, and it's still like that in tribal cultures in the third world. Because of the high infant mortality, people will have 10, 12 kids hoping that three or four will survive to be able to look after them when they get old. It's still like that in the third world, but it was like that here. Not having a kid would have been a big deal. It would have been seen a curse as being a curse of God. You see this in the Old Testament. You see this with Sarah. You see this with the mother of Samson. You give me children or I die. This kind of thing was a big deal. So what automatically invokes suspicion. Is this a curse from God, a judgment, because of some kind of marital infidelity of adultery? Well, that's the way they looked at it. Now let's understand this further. Novum testamentum and vetere latet. If you like Latin, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. All of these things in the Torah are foreshadowings of the New Testament revelation of Christ. We cannot understand what this means unless we interpret it in light of the New Testament. Jewish people who don't accept Yeshua, don't accept Jesus, will never understand their own scriptures. They will never understand the Tanakh, the Old Testament, unless they see him as the fulfillment. On the other hand, Christians will have a kindergarten understanding of the New Testament unless they understand it as fulfilling the Old. You will never have an in-depth understanding of the New Testament unless you understand it in light of the Old. Turn with me, please, to understand this to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to the Messiah, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Again, this idea being cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. This was in Numbers 5. This is in Ephesians 5. You have the husband and the wife. God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. We are imagio dei beings. 
God told Adam and Eve they would become achad, one flesh, achad in Hebrew, a plural oneness. When they asked Jesus the greatest commandment, Jesus said, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad. Baruch Shem Kvodor Mahutole Olam Vaed. Vachav Techat Adonai Elohecha. Kol Levavecha. Kol Nafshecha. Vachol Modecha. Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is oneness. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. The oneness of the Godhead is mirrored, reflected in the oneness of a marital union. The Hebrew idiom for consummating a marriage is niknasba, niknasba. You see this in the Old Testament. And he went into her, niknasba. One person goes inside of another person, and a third is procreated. It becomes one in three, three in one. This reflects the triunity of our Creator. Okay? Now, there are many ways that, because we're made in his image and likeness, as a magio dei beings, reflects, this is reflected in our nature. That's the reason we have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Okay? Because God has a spirit. God has a body, and Jesus becomes incarnate. These things, this threeness and oneness, reflects the God in whose image and likeness we are made. Well, this ahad that takes place in the Godhead itself is the ahad that is reflected at holy matrimony. It's one of the reasons God hates divorce. Uh, the permanency of a Christian marriage is to testify to the eternal unity of the Godhead himself. You understand? It's one of the reasons God hates divorce. The permanency of a Christian marriage is to testify to the eternal oneness of God himself. Nonetheless, let's look at this. So you've got the bride and the bridegroom. What Numbers 5 is drawing on is something you also see in the New Testament, particularly in the Epistle of James. This Hebrew concept called znut, 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 harlotry. In the Bible, idolatry was called adultery. When Israel went after other gods, you'll see the prophets like Hosea saying things like, daughter of Zion, you've played the harlot. You've gone after other lovers. God equates idolatry with adultery. Israel was to be God's woman as the church is the bride of Christ. Well, a husband does not want his wife going into adultery or infidelity. A wife does not want her husband fooling around with some other woman. Why is that? It's that way because we're made in the image and likeness of God. The reason you don't want anybody fooling around with your old man or your old lady is because God doesn't want anybody fooling around with his. You understand? We're made in his image and likeness. But when something happens here, and there's no procreation, when there's no growth, the bridegroom becomes suspicious, and he wants to find out what's going on. Why do churches sometimes not grow? Now, by growth, I mean not simply picking up refugees from other churches. Don't get me wrong, people should leave wacky churches and come to biblical ones. They should do that. But that's not the kind of growth we want. We want what Paul says. He called the people he led to the Lord as his children in the Lord. We want to see people get born again, get saved through evangelism, and be discipled. That's real growth. That's dynamic growth. Remember, there's not been a real revival in the United States since the early 1970s. The last time there was a real revival in America was the hippies, when Calvary chapels began. That was, that was the last time there was a real revival. 
Um, most of you obviously were not born yet, but it was an incredible thing. You got these guys coming back from Vietnam. Uh, they were strung out on heroin coming back from Vietnam. Junkies, total junkies. They were getting uh, 100 milligrams of methadone a day or more from the VA clinic. And getting saved, no cold turkey, no withdrawal. Not one or two. Thousands of them. <laughs> and people that were you know, burning their draft cards and burning flags and throwing Molotov cocktails at police cards. They're falling down and repenting and accepting Jesus. And it was something. Of course, that's how Calvary chapels began. The established denominations wouldn't let the hippies in, so Chuck Smith did, and then they kicked Chuck, Chuck Smith out. <laughs> well, that's what happened. That's how Jews for Jesus began. They didn't like these Jewish hippies. 30,000 Jewish hippies got saved in California in the late 60s. And uh, go get a haircut. Well, Marsh Rosen didn't tell them to get a haircut, and so they had Jews for Jesus. These things began from this last revival. But that's a long time. That's a generation. Every generation must have its own revival. Inertia will only carry you so far. What God did in the early days of, of, of Calvary Chapel, when guys like Mike McIntosh got saved or whatever, okay, that can only carry us so far for so long. There has to be another baby boom in the spiritual sense. But it's really not happening. Some are saved. Thank God for that. But when there is no pregnancy, the bridegroom wants to know why. He begins to suspect infidelity. Why are the churches not growing? Why? Is television become more important than evangelism? Well, if something becomes more important than God, or if something is more important than the salvation of the lost, that thing is becoming an idol. That thing is becoming an idol. Uh, what's going on? Is the bride being unfaithful? The bridegroom wants to know. He gets very suspicious. God is a jealous God, we're told. Jesus is a jealous husband. And so, bring the wife, bring the bride before the high priest. We will find out. However, this right of ordeal and law of jealousy worked two ways. It would either bring an indictment for infidelity, or it would bring a successful conception. If she was innocent, it would be a fertility right. If she was guilty, it would expose her sin. Let's look. Bring her before the priest and put the barley meal, the grain in her hand, but no incense on it and no oil. No incense and no oil. Turn with me, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 30. In Hebrew, we call Exodus Shemot, the names, the book of the names. In verse 30, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured in anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportion. It is holy and shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it or puts it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. The Hebrew word for anointing oil is shemen, shemen. But it is holy unto you. 
Holy means set apart by God. Set apart by God. Don't put it on somebody else. It's holy to you. It's set apart to you. When Elisha wanted Elijah's mantle, Elijah said, I can't give that to you. When I'm raptured, when I go up in the chariot, see if it falls down to you. God has to give it. I can't give it to you. Be careful of these people getting on airplanes, going to some lunatic asylum with a cross on the roof in Toronto, Canada, or Pensacola, Florida, to get some conniver laying hands on them to transfer an anointing. Even assuming the anointing is real, which is debatable, it's an abomination to do that. It's not ours to give. John says, you have an anointing. Our anointing is from the Lord. Now, there is a biblical laying on of hands, but it's not a transferring of anointing. Let's understand this. It is holy unto you. This idea of holy unto you is mekudesh. Mekudesh in Hebrew. The one designated. The one set apart by God. It is the same term for the ritual the high priest had to undergo when he went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He had to be mekudesh. Set apart by God for that purpose. A descendant of Aaron and so forth. He was mekudesh. It is also, can we get the word kodesh, holy, okay? It is also the Hebrew term for marrying, wedding somebody, to wed someone. Mekudesh. A Jewish wedding is a little bit different than a Christian wedding. There's only one, not 16. There's no four richer, four poorer, four better, and four worse. There's only one. <clears throat> and you take the ring and you say to your bride, you're under a hoopah from the Song of Solomon. His banner over me is love. And you're under the hoopah. And you say, with this ring I wed thee according to the laws of Moses and Israel. Then you step on a wine glass. Then you've had it, brother. But anyway, <laughs> once you've done that, God has set this man apart to this woman. God has set this woman apart to this man. You don't sleep with somebody's wife or somebody's husband. Why? Because it's holy. God has set her apart to him. God has set him apart to her. It is Mekudesh. If somebody other than the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, it's an abomination. Why? Because it's Mekudesh. Your anointing is Mekudesh. Be careful of these people going around, Oh, the anointing, the anointing, the anointing. The people who speak about anointing the most understand at least. The Hebrews anointed three kinds of people, high priests, kings, and prophets. They were all God's anointed. But you see today when the con artist money preachers do their heresy on television, and if you criticize it, their devotees always respond the same way. Touch not my anointing. Too ignorant to know that that verse occurs three times in the Bible, in Samuel, in Chronicles, and in Psalms. Each case it refers to King David's encounter with King Saul at the cave of Angedi. No, David would not touch Saul, because he was God's anointed. Whether Benny and Kenny are is also debatable, but King Saul was. No, he wouldn't touch him. But it didn't stop David from telling the truth about him, that he was a backslider and a murderer who went into witchcraft and the occult, necromancy. It didn't stop the prophet Samuel from writing the truth about him in God's word for all eternity, that he was a backslider and a murderer who went into the occult. 
If anyone is ignorant enough to think touch not my anointed means, you don't name the names of people who mislead God's people. Quick, take the Bible. Without kings. It says every king of Israel was a backslider except Yehu. Uh, <laughs> only one wasn't. Only one wasn't. Many of the kings of, of, of Judah were backslidden. Quick, tear out the book of kings. Oh, well, the New Testament, Herod was the king, but Jesus called him a fox. Quick, rip out the Gospels. Oh, well, who do those apostles think they were? They're touching God's anointed. Look out for Alexander the coppersmith. Look out for Hymenaeus. Look out for Diotrephes. Look out for Philippus. The apostles named these guys. Quick, tear the epistles out of the Bible. They're touching God's anointed. That's not what it means. The people who speak of anointing the most understand it the least. It means you are set apart by God for that purpose. Be it that marriage, that ministry, that whatever. It is not transferable. Don't put the oil on anyone else. When the bride has been unfaithful, no oil on the grain. God's not interested in talking about anointing. Oh, he's so anointed. Let's forget about the oil. Let's find out why the miscarriages are happening. Let's look further. But then in verse 34, Moses said, Take for yourself stockte, anica, galbanum, spices of pure frankincense. There should be an equal portion of each. And with it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. Again, holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put a portion of it before the testimony of the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be not only holy, but most holy. Now this idea of most holy has the idea of how far you go into the temple. You understand? You've got the holy place, then you've got the holy of holies. What we call in Hebrew the Kodesh Kodeshim, the Sanctum Sanctorum. Only the high priest could go in there. So the further you go closer to the ark, the more holy it becomes. This becomes not simply holy, but this incense is most holy. Well, what is this incense? The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportion, in verse 37. For yourselves it shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use this perfume shall be cut off from this people. Incense, we're told in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, is the prayer of the saints. It is not holy. It is most holy. We go before the Lord. Because of the blood of Christ, we can actually enter the Holy of Holies, it says in Hebrews. It's not just the holy thing. It's most holy. But don't use worship to perfume yourself. We no longer have a Christian music ministry. We have a Christian music industry based in Nashville, Tennessee. Most of these Christian record companies are now owned by secular conglomerates. They have pop charts. They have disc jockeys. They even have groupies, some of these people. It has become like the world. Do you know how many worship leaders in so many churches are failed pop stars? Now they're going to use their lack of talent for the Lord? Something has happened generally in the body of Christ today. I'm not necessarily saying this church, but I'm saying it is a general phenomena. We have the worship of worship, not the worship of God. It has become an entertainment industry. It is entertainment. They are perfuming themselves. God's not interested in this. Forget about the oil. Forget about the frankincense, it says. In Numbers 5, he wants to know 
why the churches are not growing the way they once did. Has the bride been unfaithful? She can talk about anointing and worship all she wants, but right now the bridegroom is not interested in that. He's interested in finding out if his bride has been unfaithful. But let's continue. In Numbers 5, she would stand before the Lord with the grain in her hand. And the priest would take the water. And he would write on it the curses of the Torah. These being Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, places like that. There are as many curses in the Word of God as there are blessings. (laughs) Write the curses. Put them in the water. And it goes into her. It literally says, even in English, the water will go inside of her. Now understand here, the Hebrew, you have a play on words. Or he uses the same term in verse 24. He shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse, so the water which brings a curse will go into her. It is using the same idiom for sexual intercourse. You understand? The water goes in, to find out if someone other than her husband has been going in. <laughs> Sorry to be crude. But that's what it says in the, in the Hebrew text. What is this water? Well, Ephesians tells us the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, sanctifying her, washing her with the water of the word. It's like an internal oblation. It'll reveal What is wrong? She has to stand before the priest then. Just stand before the Lord. And in verse 18, the woman will let her hair go loose. And from here, obviously, we get the colloquialism to let one's hair down. To let one's hair down means to show people what you're really like. Not just the person you see on Sunday. What is Jacob like when he goes home to his wife in England? Well, they're two different guys. (laughs) We let our hair down, not that I have much to let down anymore. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 5, every woman who has her head uncovered while she's praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one of the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, which the hair is the covering, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Okay. Now, this is not talking about the head covering and the thing, but just what the hair means for our purpose now. Okay. Why? Because we're told that this hair, in verse 15, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For his glory is given to her for a covering. That's why I'm not so insistent about women wearing hats or veils to churches. It's the hair. Um, It's her glory. Something happens. The self-glorification of the church. 
Isaiah addresses this. Woe to the crown of the proud drunkards of Ephraim. You have the worship of the church. Every false religion in the world worships the ism. You understand? Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't worship Jehovah. They worship the Watchtower Society. They worship the institution. They worship the ism. Or the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. I've got a burning in my bosom and I testify to you, Church of Latter-day Saints is true. Well, first of all, their Jesus is the half-brother of Satan. Their Jesus is not the real one. But they don't worship Jesus. They worship the institution, the Mormon church in Utah. Fundamentalist Muslims worship Islam. If you really understand Roman Catholicism, it's not about Jesus. It's not even about Mary. It's, quote-unquote, Holy Mother the Church. They worship the institution. Orthodox Jews worship Talmudic Judaism. You have this deification of the institution. That happens among evangelicals. The work of the Lord becomes more important than the Lord of the work. The ministry becomes an idol in itself. Now this is a big subject. We have other tapes dealing with this issue. But there's a problem here. The self-glorification of the church. A lot of the stuff you see today, particularly post-millennialism, kingdom now theology, dominionism, this is really the deification of the church. The church is going to conquer the world for Christ before he comes. These, these kingdom now people, dominionists are saying. This, this is what's on the back of Rick Warren. This whole dominion theology thing. This is crazy. The Lord of glory will trample Satan under your feet. In Romans 16. It's the seed of the woman who crushes Satan's head, not the woman. In addition to the fact that the woman is Israel anyway, only the church by incorporation. Nonetheless, you got this deification of the church, this self-glorification of the institution. No, take your hair down, lady. We don't want to know about your coffee or your hairstyle. We want to know about your fidelity to your husband. Take the hair down. Forget about this stuff. Forget about the talk about the anointing. Forget about the frankincense. Forget about the worship of worship. Let's find out what the problem is. This was God's obstetric clinic, his infertility clinic. Well, it's still his infertility clinic. It's still his obstetric clinic. He will still find out if his bride has been faithful. Drink the water with the curses in it. If you are guilty, you will miscarry again. But if you are innocent, you will conceive. It can either be an indictment or a liberation. It is either a fertility right or something that incriminates. If the bride is innocent, she has nothing to fear and everything to gain by drinking the water of the word. Why do you think these people are going away from expounding the Word of God? More and more of their sermons are based on anecdotes, psychology, a couple of verses out of context, usually from a butchered Bible like the message. Anything but the exposition of God's Word. Keep away from that. Don't drink the water. Because it will show what we are. It will show what the bride has become. A floozy. 
The church has become so much like the world, you can't tell the difference. What does James call worldly churches? James chapter 4, you adulteresses. Znut. Znut. He wants to know what's going on. Drink this. She drinks it. And then, if she's guilty, she'll miscarry. I was saved in a revival among the hippies. I go to places where there are revivals. Europe is post-Christian and neo-pagan. It's worse than America. America's going the same way as Western Europe. But there is a revival among the gypsies in Europe. When you see a real move of God, you're going to know what a counterfeit is immediately. I go to Kenya. Seeing people, women coming out of the mountains with a pair of sandals on their feet and a baby in a blanket on their back, walking two, two and a half hours at night after working a 12, 13 hour day to scrape out a meager subsistence, living one half step above the edge of poverty, trying to survive with that baby on her back, walking two and a half hours to church at night and then home again, wouldn't miss it for the world. She has no television, she has no VCR, she has no electricity. All she has is her faith in Jesus. She wouldn't miss church. You see a real move of God, you'll know a counterfeit. But in recent years, all I've seen is miscarriages. There's something that psychiatric medicine calls. Can I borrow this? Thank you. <laughs> the hysterical pregnancy syndrome. It's, there's been articles in the American Journal of Psychiatric Medicine explaining it. Women are so frustrated from infertility, they begin convincing themselves that they're expecting. And some of them actually mimic the symptoms of morning sickness. They, they go out and they buy maternity clothes. <laughs> they, they tell their husbands that they're pregnant when they're not. It's actually a, a, a clinically recognized condition among psychiatrists. Hysterical pregnancy syndrome. Well, you can buy all the maternity clothes you want. <laughs> you know? You're either pregnant or you're not. It's like being a Christian. You're either saved or you're not. Nobody's a little bit pregnant. Well, nobody's a little bit Christian. You're either born again or you're not. It's the same. There's either a move of God or there isn't. But I've seen people with a lot of big talk saying there's a revival. They had one in Toronto, Canada. The whole thing came to nothing. There's no revival in Canada. Oh, there's a revival in Toronto. <laughs> Baby's coming. <laughs> Have you heard there's a revival in Pensacola, Florida? After a financial scandal, that church split. Oh, there's a baby coming. <laughs> the biggest ministry in the world, the PTL Club, Jim and Tommy, they had a revival every week. Oh, did the baby come in? In England, it's Alpha Courses. Oh, did the baby come in? Now it's purpose driven. Oh, did the baby come in? Lady, you can stuff all the sweaters under your frock you want to, but there's no pie in the oven. <laughs> 
What you have is a miscarriage. Miscarriage. Judge it biblically. Drink the world. No, drink the word. They're drinking the world. If the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, how can people say, I know it's God, I couldn't control it. By virtue of the fact you can't control it proves it cannot possibly be God. The fruit of the Spirit is a crete. If somebody's not in control of themselves, God's not in control of them. If an alcoholic gets saved and begins going back to bars and getting loaded, is God in control of him? No, he's backslidden. If God was in control of him or her, they'd be in control of themselves. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The Spirit, the, uh, spirit of the prophets is uh, subject to the prophets. I couldn't control it. It had to be God. It's crazy. When you drink the water of the word, you find out what rubbish is really going on. Slain in the spirit. I love that one. Yes, it's in the Bible. Revelation chapter 1, John was in the spirit in the Lord's day, and when the power of Jesus came on him, he fell as if slain. But in the Bible, it was a once-in-a-lifetime, life-changing event. Daniel was terrified. John was terrified. An angel had to say, don't be afraid. It was a once-in-a-lifetime, life-changing event. It doesn't matter what happens when people go down. It only matters what happens when they get back up. How different is their life? Once-in-a-lifetime, life-changing event in the Bible. Weren't you just up here a half hour ago? Yeah, now I have a headache. Now, there's a picture of it. When Jesus saw that kid who the demon kept throwing him to the fire and Jesus cast the demon out of him, he fell down and they thought he was dead, remember? Then he gets back up. Slain in the spirit was a picture of salvation. You die in Christ and you get up a new creation like the resurrection. Satan no longer had the power to throw him in the fire. It was a picture of salvation. That's what happens. There's a spiritual meaning to it. In the Bible, they always went back, back. In the Bible, they always went forward. The one place they went backward, it says first they went forward, then they shriveled back, was when they came to arrest Jesus. Whenever it was a blessing, divine favor, they always went forward. Hebrew hishtavot, they fell down in worship, prostrate. Okay. These guys are falling the wrong direction. They go around with professional catches. I know it's God. I know it's God. Well, you're falling the wrong direction. If it's God, he's angry at you. It's a judgment. When you drink the water of the word, you find out that they're talking a lot of garbage because that's what they're teaching. Garbage. It's deception. It's con artistry. But it's not Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. What those people are doing is hypnotic induction combined with demonic deception. This is not to deny the genuine phenomena of being slain in the spirit that's in the Bible. But when it's genuine, it'll agree with the Bible. The water of the word. But all they're doing is miscarrying. Every stunt, every gimmick, every fad. Prayer of Jabez, promise keepers, doesn't matter what it is. One miscarriage after another. But when you test any of that stuff, you find out it is doctrinally flawed. It does not agree with Scripture. It is all flawed. 
Yes, I've seen a real move of God. There was a move of God here in California that was absolutely incredible among the young people in the 1960s. You have to remember then, demographically, the average age in America in 1964 was 17. That was the average age of the average American. Our society is much older. This was an incredible move of God. If you've seen the real thing, you will not believe a phony. If you've really conceived a child and carried full term, <laughs> you're going to know a false pregnancy when you see one. If you have the authentic, you won't need a phony. The bridegroom wants to know. However, if she's faithful, if she's faithful, if she's not defiled herself and is clean, she will be free and conceive children. If we are innocent, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain by drinking the water of the word. Nothing to lose, everything to gain. But if we're guilty, God's going to know, but he's going to let everyone else know. He, of course, already knows. But this revealed what God already knew to everyone. Has the bride been unfaithful? If you suspected your husband of having an affair, God forbid, or your wife of having an affair, you wouldn't be interested in a romantic candlelight dinner down by the beach in Santa Barbara. That would be the furthest thing from your mind. You wouldn't be interested in your wife's new hairstyle or her pretty dress. You wouldn't be interested in romance or second honeymoon in Maui. You wouldn't want that. You'd only want one question answered. Is the person that God has set apart to me been faithful? Well, that's what Jesus wants to know. Has his bride been faithful? Or are there other lovers? Maybe mammon. A lot of mammon worship on so-called Christian TV. Somehow they imagine it's faith, but it's just mammon worship. It's idolatry. Maybe it's spiritual pride, self-glorification of the church. Whatever it is, something is causing these miscarriages. There's got to be a reason. They keep going from one fad and one gimmick to another, but the baby never comes. The right of ordeal the law of jealousy. However, that same God would later ask, where is the certificate of divorce? <laughs> he is a loving husband. His old lady might have been fooling around, but he doesn't love her any less. He's still willing to take her back if she repents. You see, I don't even believe that Infidelity is grounds for divorce. I believe unrepentant infidelity is grounds for divorce. Sleeping with somebody other than your husband and your wife is an outrage. It should not even be named among us. But even if that happened, it would be better for the marriage to be reconciled the way God wanted to be reconciled with Israel, despite her sin. He hates divorce. He hates it. We should hate it. But he also hates adultery. He hates infidelity. 
You don't want your wife fooling around? Because God does not want his wife fooling around. He's a jealous God. He was jealous for Israel. The Messiah is jealous for his bride, the church. God is more jealous for his woman than you are for yours. He wants his woman to love him more than you want your woman to love you. And so he has given us the right of ordeal, the law of pregnancy. You know, we live in a sick society. I once watched a film made by a Christian film producer, and it was a neonatal surgeon who was a Christian, and he went up in an elevator in a hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Children's Maternity Hospital in Pennsylvania, with the late Francis Schaeffer. One floor, one ward in this hospital, they were spending thousands and thousands of dollars a day then to keep one premature baby alive in an incubator. An elevator ride of two, two stories in the same building. They were aborting babies of almost the same fetal age. You've got waiting lists for people trying to adopt babies. It's people, there's a third, uh, third world adoptions and there's a black market. It's people desperate to get kids. Because of feminism, women have entered the job market, uh, entered, entered the job market earlier, but, but tried to have children earlier. And after the age of 30, you run a much higher risk of infertility and congenital birth defects. So you've got a shortage of kids for adoption. At the same time, we're killing kids. This is sick. Uh, there's no such, there may be an unwanted pregnancy, but there's no such thing as an unwanted baby. Well, people want babies. Why do we want babies? Because God wants babies, and we're made in his image and likeness. He wants to share his love. The reason you want to share your love unconditionally with the baby is because God created that kind of love to teach about himself. He wants a kid. He wants babies. But if he's not getting them, he wants to know why. The question is, do we want to know why? After all the big talk, Toronto came to nothing. Pensacola came to nothing. Prayer of Jabez came to nothing. Promise Keepers came to nothing. Purpose Driven's coming to nothing. Why? Let's find out why. The bridegroom wants his babies. God bless.